Context South Beach Command. What's happening? Context South Beach Command. The lay that order. Context South Beach Command. This is the captain. Context South Beach Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery, a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Prianica. Well, Adam, we've got a big show lined up for today. We've got an interview coming up with a writer from Star Trek Enterprise, Chris Black. But uh, I thought maybe first, get into some news. That's right, Ben. Lots of newsworthy things happening. W slash R slash T, Star Trek Discovery. Uh, yeah, and Star Trek in general. Yeah, maybe the biggest being the uh, the Alex Kurtzman news, right? He uh, inks a five-year yeah. deal with CBS, and part of this deal is to expand the Star Trek universe with uh, possibly a number of different shows. They're kind of going buck wild. I mean, there's this, there's all this peace do news flying around, and as far as I can tell, that's not like totally confirmed yet, uh, but. Right, and that's related to the Kurtzman thing because uh, right. that would be one of the properties that Kurtzman uh, is responsible for. He's basically being anointed to turn on the fire hose of Star Trek content, and I don't know. I'm kind of the the shows that are like rumored to be involved or uh, have been hinted will be involved in this are a a new show about Captain Picard, Captain Picard the the later years. I don't know what it's going to be called. Uh, then there's uh, a Starfleet Academy show, and the creators of The O.C. and Gossip Girl are apparently going to be the ones running that. Uh, and then uh, a Wrath of Khan story, which I think had been on the chopping block before, but is now back, and an animated series. Yeah. Makes me wonder if the animated series would be the Patrick Stewart vehicle. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, because one of the one of the latest rumors we've been hearing is that uh, a there could be a TNG reboot or post TNG series uh, as a part of this package, and and so much gossip about Patrick Stewart and and whether or not he'll be involved or how close he is to signing on the line that is dotted. Yeah, everyone's in a titter over. Oh, it. he's a verbal agreement or whatever. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing that I've been thinking about a little bit is the starvation level desire people had for more Star Wars things. Mm -hmm. And now that they're getting them, people are being real assholes about it. <laughs> like like the like the Star Wars fan culture seems to be totally spiraling out of control <laughs> in a way that is is really insane to watch. Like the you know, people that say that they're raising money to reshoot the Last Jedi because they hated the Last Jedi so much, and those people are uh, idiots. It should always <laughs> be said that they're idiots. Yeah, I, I yeah, I agree. I was getting to that. The Declaration but, of Star Wars Independence or whatever, like fuck that. I have a little apprehension that if we have five Star Trek shows going at any given time to choose from. I mean, A, this is going to be exhausting for us because we're going to have a lot of pod to be to be making in that, in, if that is the case. And B, I wonder, do people start to turn on it in the same shitty way that 
the Star Wars fans. I mean, not obviously, like Star Wars is doing fine. They're raking money in by the mint, but uh, but there's a lot of angry naysaying out there. I'm kind of of two minds about it. Like on the one hand, I want to believe that Patrick Stewart's involvement in anything would be a seal of quality whose floor would be pretty high. But also, he was a part of Star Trek Nemesis. But also, like on the third hand, no one could be more motivated to to correct the end of one of his most beloved characters than Patrick Stewart. So I've, I've got to believe that if he were to jump back into this pool, that it would be uh, for all the right reasons. One would hope. Um, yeah, I got the sense that Akiva Goldsman is going to stay involved also, and... The stuff I had heard previously was that Akiva Goldsman was really, was really out yeah. over there, yeah. like out of out of the writers' room at Disco and 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 on his way out in general. But like, I kind of think that he has a lot of responsibility for some of the cornier parts of the J.J. Abrams reboots, like make making them the kind of more dumbed down mainstream action movies that they are, and and less about. Uh, about like the kind of stories that Star Trek is particularly good at telling, so I, I, I'm interested to see like what if if these are the two guys that are going to be doing it. Like, what does that mean about what their ethics are? You know, like what do they want to preserve? Like, what do they think are the valuable parts of Star Trek that they want to keep, and what do they think are things that they can discard? And I'm sure that those will be controversial decisions, no matter how they make them. I think uh, we could make a prediction based on how Star Trek Discovery turned out. I think that is going to be emblematic of the kind of Star Trek we get down the road. I think it has to be, right? Lots more uh, breakfast burritos in yeah. Star Trek's future. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's it's a consolidation of Star Trek power, is what this is. It's like the Medellin cartel forming. Like Alex, Alex Kurtzman is uh, is Escobar, and uh, and he's getting all the. All the drug dealers under his thumb. <laughs> Let's take these one by one. Like, what what are you most excited about and what are you least excited about if we're talking about these possible new series? So I am cautiously optimistic about a post-TNG Star Trek. I think that's what I was hoping for when they announced that there was going to be a new Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to see something that is way further in the future and I, I I'm excited to see the kind of you know what that what that will force them to imagine because I think that Star Trek has given us a lot of our conception of what the future could be like as a culture and I don't think that when you're making prequels you're quite doing that work so you know what are, what what new crazy ideas can they come up with that will actually you know, change the way people imagine what the future could be. Yeah. I suppose I'm also pretty excited about this Starfleet Academy show. I mean, the pedigree on those showrunners is is pretty fun to be running a show like that. Yeah, tell me more about that pedigree. You you mentioned the OC and uh, and what else? Yeah, so it's uh, it's Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz. They do Marvel's Runaways for Hulu right now. Mm-hmm. But they did Gossip Girl, and I think they did The O.C. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's exciting to me personally. I really like The O.C. when it first Yeah, you're came a big out. O.C. fan, right? Yeah, I love the Josh Schwartz. 
<laughs> Maybe we'll get a get a Peter Gallagher cameo here. Are you an uh, OC fan as well? Or, I mean, a Gossip Girl fan as well? Uh, yeah, I think that was, uh, that's a show I can blame my wife for, uh, for liking. I, I, have, I have to admit, it was a guilty pleasure for sure. This is like, yeah, this, this could be the show that I get my wife into Star Trek with <laughs> because she was a huge Gossip Girl fan. Yeah. And uh, I, could, I could totally sell her a show and then, you know, 13 minutes in when there's a, a starship she's gonna be like wait a second and then i'm gonna be like give it time yeah. you're gonna like this <laughs> like uh sneaking the uh the medicine in with the sugar uh-huh yeah i'm excited about uh, the idea of an animated series because uh because of how it could usurp budget in a live action series like unconstrained from budget and making it about uh like what you could draw I think that would be amazing, and to stock to stock it with the voices that we've come to know and love. If the animated series is a TNG offshoot, I think that sounds fun. But uh, conversely, if the TNG ends up being live action, and if it's a Picard centric show, I mean, I thought Logan was a great film, and the idea of an end of life Captain Picard story, I I find very interesting, and I would totally show up for a show like that. Yeah. What if if you had like unfinished? Do you have any like unfinished business of Picard's that you'd like to see him go resolve? Does he retire to Mintaka and become the godhead that they always wanted him to be? <laughs> I think Beverly is a is a captain of a ship somewhere, and if she's in danger, I think a fun story is what a, what a Captain Picard could do or would do in a circumstance like that. If he, got, he comes on as a like a management consultant on her on her starship <laughs> i don't know like the uh the the thing that's unresolved about picard is like will will he ever find love yeah and it's it's true it's weird to think that that is uh of such interest to me as a like just general interest star trek fan but i don't know i think that's that's the thing about him i'd like to know more about like if we if we talk about happy endings for him he's obviously a character that i care a ton about i hope he's happy wherever he is and i think uh finding uh finding a lady to share the remaining years of his life i think would be a a big big part of that yeah i'd also be kind of curious i i wish uh we had gotten some some closure on the Spock thing, like Spock going to, mm-hmm. to Romulus mm-hmm. in TNG. And I feel like that was like a big arc that could have an interesting, so, some you know, it would be an interesting place to play because we haven't really seen much of the Romulans in a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the diplomatic mission of Picard trying to pick up where Spock left off or something like that. Jordy cool. just fucking B4 in his apartment. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> kind of a lot of uh, potential options here, <laughs> Mister LaForge. If you're, if you're going to fuck a semi-animate sex robot, allow me to offer you one that doesn't look exactly like your best friend. <laughs> Take it for me, someone who created his best friend in my late wife Rashan. Things can get pretty fucked up in a pretty short amount of time. 
it, I, I never really understood the criticism, you know, of the guys that go around saying, yeah, my, she's my wife, but she's also my best friend, but it actually turns out to be kind of a fucked up relationship <laughs> dynamic, and I just don't want you to fall into the same thing because I respect you as a friend, Jordy. Few people know that I also make a living doing consultations. <laughs> For those who wish to join the real doll lifestyle. I'm kind of the Dan Savage of, <laughs> of the 24th century. Look, at, look out for my podcast and, and column in alt-weekly newspapers. The X-Bridge Livecast. <laughs> yeah, five years, Ben. Five years of the, uh, yeah. of the Kurtzman Industrial Complex. I hope it's good. This could get exhausting for us. We're gonna have we we're gonna have to have a serious conversation about how we deal with this. <laughs> that's basically that's basically what I'm anticipating. I, it's gonna be a real I love Lucy in the chocolate factory situation where uh, <laughs> we're recording pod as fast as show is getting made. I don't think they're yeah. gonna put out these concurrently. I don't get that feeling. Like I think Star Trek for decades has tried. I mean. Uh, the overlap with DS9 and TNG notwithstanding, I think they have tried to uh, sequentialize the release of things versus uh, concurrently right. put stuff out. So I would hope that that's, that's how it goes going forward. Yeah. It's like you get a Star Wars episode blank movie one year, and then you get something, a Star Wars story the next year. Right. Picard, a Star Trek story. <laughs> maybe that's what we get. Maybe it's maybe there is no TNG crew. Maybe it's just Picard. And they explain how he got the last name Picard because we needed to find that out. Nah, not really. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we got this interview, so why don't we uh, why don't we cut to that? What do you say? Let's do it. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? Those Klingons? Chris Black is a writer and producer who has actually worked on some Star Trek in real life. He was a writer on Star Trek Enterprise, and he came in to talk to us about what it is like to write for a universe as well-established as Star Trek is. So enjoy this interview now. Well, we're here with Chris Black, a television writer... Uh, what, tell, tell us what your credits are. All of them, or <laughs> just uh, germane to the uh, the subject of our program? Well, I've been writing and producing television for twenty three years. Wow. I started out. The first job I had was on a USA cable show, half hour single camera comedy called Weird Science, uh-huh. based on the John Hughes movie that I did two seasons of, and then I did you know a fair amount of genre stuff. I did two seasons on Sliders. Uh, as I sort of jokingly say, the bad years, like <laughs> after Fox canceled it and Sci-Fi Channel picked it up and they moved it to L.A. and slashed the budget. And that then, was like the cockroach of shows, I feel like. It was yeah, on... so we kept stomping on it, trying to kill it. And it, just would scuttle, <laughs> it would scuttle under the refrigerator and refuse to die. Yeah. Um, which is not fair to Sliders. It had a lot of fans. And it was a lot of fun to work on. It was. Yeah, it I don't was, mean it in the way of it no, well, they were a pest, but more like it, it could not be killed. <laughs> it, it, it could not be killed, although it... After two seasons of of toiling under less than optimal circumstances, I felt like it 
basically deserved to die a dignified death rather than sort of keeping it on life support the way we did. Well, after the just merciless dunk sesh we took on Babylon 5 last uh, episode of this show, I think we should probably move on from sliders okay. before it gets ugly. Okay, well, <laughs> look, I'm just like, you know, it's like anything. Well, it's it's a little bit of an object lesson. I mean, no one sets out to do a terrible television show, uh-huh. but, but sometimes, uh, you know, you go in always with the best of intentions, you know, sure. but sometimes circumstances conspire against. Anyway, yeah. so I did, I did Weird Science and I did Sliders. I was in the sort of Rob Tappert, Sam Raimi universe for a little while. I did some episodes of Xena Warrior Princess. Fun. I worked a season on one of their less successful shows called Cleopatra 2525, which was uh, a little bit of a sort of ill-advised project, but was great fun. Is that ancient Egypt in the future? No, it was... How do I even describe it? Is that Cleopatra's better than perfect vision? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, No, it was this... Wait, didn't that mean she can read 25-point font at 25 feet? Cleopatra's eye exam is just a bunch of like Egyptian symbols, like facing up and down and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, right. and then, well, but I then how do you bird. know how you do? How do you know how you're doing on the test if you can't identify them? Right, it's like yeah. a hook with a cross, and then there's <laughs> yeah. the thing. Um, but no, it was three young, attractive women in sort of metal bikinis fighting robot monsters in a post-apocalyptic. Ah, oh, sold in the room. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was an odd piece. It was fun. We shot it in New Zealand. It was Rob. It was. It was. There were two half hours that were supposed to be sort of put together. One, the other half was this um, Bruce Campbell show called Jack of All Trades. Whoa! Uh, and so it was like the. Uh, the action pack, I think it was called. It was weird. This was back in the days of syndicated television when yeah. Rob Tappert was like the king of syndicated television. He had like five shows on the air. <laughs> um, and then, and it was cheesy fun. It shot in New Zealand, uh, you know, and then the Jack of All Trades got canceled first. So they tried to then expand our half hour show into an hour and it just kind of spiraled from bad yeah. to worse. And I did that. And, what, and then I did a... Uh, there's, I mean, you can IMDb me. There's a, a bunch of bad failed credits, and then, but then I wound up for three seasons on Star Trek Enterprise, that would which be I guess is why the vast majority of Star Trek Enterprise, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, three of the four. I was there for seventy five percent of it, uh, which I assume is why I'm here, sitting here today. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that Adam and I have speculated about a lot, and with you know a fairly limited amount of expertise, is like what it is like to try and write stories and characters in a universe that is like super well established. And I think Star Trek Enterprise is a previous example of that kind of a project right. where like some of this is new mythos that you get to make up. Right. Uh, some of it is new stories you get to tell because mythos is not established on a certain subject matter. But like, I don't know, like I've been thinking a lot of late, a lot lately about how, the kind of television we make now is so different. Right. Well, Enterprise was a, it was, it was a weird animal, you know, in, 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 there's a lot of, it was, you know, I was there for three years. I, I was, they, um, asked me to come back for season four and it was just, and I didn't, I opted not to add a three year deal and I left after the third season. And, and, uh, partly because it was so frustrating that, that it was, it's it's yeah, I guess how much time do we have? <laughs> well, as it much was, as you'd like, as much as I'd like. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say it was a great experience. I mean, I grew up 
on I wasn't old enough to have watched the original series when it was in prime time, but I watched it when it was in syndication and I would come home from school sure. and it was on in the middle of the afternoon on channel 50 in Detroit. And I felt uh, like, that was me, but TNG and channel 44 in the Bay Area. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it was like I I fell in love with this, you know, with the show, the original, you know, Kirk Spock McCoy old school Star Trek and and loved it. And one of the things that it, you know, and then watched it, I I, I would not say um, obsessively, but, but, you know, on and off through all of its iterations. You yeah. know, I can't, I can't quote chapter and verse the way you guys can, but I, you know, I know all the series and most of the episodes and, sure. and was always a fan of it. And then when I got the opportunity to go work on the show, uh, it was it was a thrill. I mean, when Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, who were running the show, basically said, "Okay, we're going to give you a shot," it was like I hit the jackpot. And you'd go, and they were still shooting at it, as they had done all the shows at Paramount, right? And you would go on that lot and walk back. They had three big sound stages with these amazing sets, yeah. You know, and they had built the ship so it was all connected, so you could walk from one. You know, you could leave the bridge and go into the captain's ready room and then go down a corridor and turn, oh, wow. a, turn a corner and walk into sick bay. There were a couple of their two, the two main ship sets were split on two separate sound stages. But when you would go in there, when they would light it all up, uh, and at that point, they were no longer the, um, you know, the uh, the cell, the the backlit Okudagrams. They were actually, the Okudas were still doing all the graphics, but they were actual like, you know, flat screen televisions on all those displays. So they would just fire everything up and you would walk in there and it was like you were on a spaceship. Back when those flat screens were very expensive. They were, and there were dozens and dozens <laughs> of them, you know, and they had a little room and each one of them was receiving a separate feed, a separate... Yeah digital video file. So they had a little room, a little locked room on the soundstage with racks. Every of, every VHS player. No, they, they were Mac it. minis. <laughs> they were, there were, there were probably 40 of them, wow. you know, just sitting in racks and each one of them was feeding a step. playing a quick time file. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To those screens. And then they could, they could change, you know, whatever the story required that week, you know, the yeah. art department, the Okudas in the art department would just come up with something new that they would throw up. So that part of it was amazing. Yeah. You know, I got to go play in Gene Roddenberry's universe, you know, that I had wanted to do since I was a, since I was a kid, you know, and there's people running around with phasers and pointed ears and you could, you know, <laughs> it was like, it was like I died and gone to heaven. And then you got into the nitty gritty of trying, which I think goes more to the heart of your question. You got into the nitty gritty of actually trying to tell stories in this universe when so much had come before. Yeah. There's so much stuff that you can't invalidate through a storyline like the it was challenging on a bunch of different levels. It was challenging on a, on a very basic level of uh, that's a story we've told before. You uh -huh. know, I mean, that when you would go in and pitch. The Simpsons did it problem. Yeah, exactly. Well, not even the Simpsons did it. You were going in with, I think at that point, there had been something along the lines of, if you include like the animated series, something like 700 hours <laughs> of Star Trek. Yeah. Um, so it's like, what if there's some terraformers and exactly? Like, no, what if the captain's mistaken for a god? You know, it was like right. it was like which we had an unwritten rule. You could never tell that story. 
but it was like, <laughs> but it was like that. Yeah. I mean, just on a very sort of basic writing for television level. Yeah. You would go in and say, yeah, what if there's a, what if there's a ship full of terraformers who does this or that? And, and someone would invariably say, oh, that's next gen season two, episode six. Yeah. Is there like, do these shows like employ somebody that has that kind of like, you know, encyclopedic well, there was not a dedicated person whose job it was, but by and large, the people who worked on the show were all fans of the show. Right. So the cumulative sort of, you know, group knowledge that everybody had, somebody would know. Yeah. It'd be weird if they weren't fans of the show. <laughs> well, but they, I don't think there was anyone who didn't like the show, but there was a sense of, you know, it was writing one hour dramatic television yeah and and a lot of times people ask me they look at my credits and they go oh well how do you go from star trek to desperate housewives <laughs> and and which is I that did, where you went i did i did uh, i did two seasons of desperate housewives i did a show called ugly betty yeah. i did a lot of stuff that was not genre material. did you ever accidentally write a scene where like terry hatcher beamed down to and and they're like no she doesn't beam anywhere I, as much as i would have loved to have beamed terry somewhere um <laughs> we did we did not do that um but it, well she went from star trek to desperate housewives too in a way well and yeah because from uh, she was Lois in that one tng episode oh yeah she was but also she also did lois and clark for you know oh, right she was like in a, a, a genre space as well but yeah. but that i think to some extent illustrates my point is writing is writing good dramatic writing is good dramatic writing yeah. and if you have a great set of characters in an interesting situation and you inject conflict into it it doesn't matter to some extent whether it's playing out on the bridge of the enterprise or on wisteria lane it's <laughs> like you're working the same muscle to tell a story yeah um so those going into a star trek writer's room you faced the same dramatic challenges that you did on any show, you know. Um, but then layered on top of that, you had the weight of the entire Star Trek universe and the fan base sitting on your shoulders. It was like, when I say it was, well, it was challenging on a lot of levels. You, you had just on a, a, just a practical level, you don't want to tell the same story over again. Right. Uh, the reverence for the series as a whole, that n not necessarily canon, but the spirit of Star Trek that you didn't want to violate. And we would run up against that a lot where... And partly with Enterprise, too, where we were trying to do something different. At least that was the original intent of it, was to sort of coming off of Voyager. This was what the way Rick kind of sold the show to me and the, and the writers that he hired was it was supposed to be more like the right stuff in outer space. That there was a feeling that Voyager had gotten, you know, a little overly intellectual, a little aloof, a little sterile, and part of the intent of Star, of Enterprise was to do kind of what J.J.'s movies did then later was to make Star Trek fun again, you know, to make it good old fashioned two fisted, you know, they cast Scott Bakula as the captain and he was going to be getting in fist yeah. fights. And everybody and, was walking around wearing those red hats that said make Star Trek fun again. Yeah, exactly. The Mafa, the Mafa. It's a whole uh, movement. But so you had that and and then but then you also had this conflict between that saying we're going to bust the paradigm, um, but you can't bust it too much because people will get upset. Yeah. You know, and you need to be reverential to canon. And that always seems to be the tension, right? Yeah. Well, and, and I felt there was a way to do it. I mean, I felt there was a way if you looked at I remember having a lot of spirited discussions in the in the writers room with Rick and and the other writers about 
how badly could you in how bad a light could you paint Starfleet characters? Right. You know, and and Rick was very adamant in that this was Gene's utopian future and Starfleet officers had evolved beyond sort of interpersonal, con, you know, confrontations and they were all enlightened and they all got along. And if if you take a bunch of people who all get along, how do you create drama in trying to write a television show? So we were constantly trying to push it and and I would pull original series out and go like look at the relationship between spock and mccoy mccoy in some of those episodes is a flat-out racist (laughs) he says the most vile hateful racist things to spock in some of those episodes yeah you know but it doesn't mean that they're not at the end of the day colleagues and shipmates and doesn't mean he doesn't get to come to thanksgiving Exactly. There's a seat at the table for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's still, like, very upsetting and kind of triggering for Spock to see him at Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. But he knows that that's part of the deal. Uh, so it was, it, there were a lot of challenges, and it was trying to invent something new. I think there was a little Star Trek fatigue at the time. You know, I think if they had rested the show for a season or two and allow sort of the hunger for the franchise to build again, hmm. um, the way I think it ultimately did by the time they did the first J.J. movie, it, it might have had a better chance at success. But the studio was eager to keep Star Trek on the air. Yeah. Um, and so we sort of rushed into it. And and uh, look, there's a lot of episodes of, I, I feel that that show is kind of sadly gets the least amount of respect. It's a little bit of the redheaded stepchild of the <laughs> of the franchise. Right. Um, but there's a lot of work. There's a, a, look. There's a bunch of crappy episodes of Enterprise. It's like there's I I can't that I cannot defend. Um, but there's a lot of work we did on the show that I was really proud of. You know, there were there that you had a group of people who loved Star Trek and were trying really hard to do something fun and new and different with yeah. um and and keep the franchise alive and vibrant and and you know, keep people interested in watching it. Um, but the fan I mentioned before, you know, it, it was also incredibly challenging and is incredibly challenging for the people who are doing it now to deal with such a passionate fan base because yeah. everybody feels they have ownership of the show. Everybody feels that they have a very specific idea of how these stories should play and how these share characters should act. And not everyone's going to get their way, you know. Every, you know, I remember, and this was pre, you know, it, largely pre-internet. Yeah. So it was there were the bullet, there were the online, you know, fan boards yeah. and, and stuff like that. But that was about it. So we would get mail. I mean, actual <laughs> mail, like signed in blood. Well, no, the well, yeah, probably the <laughs> uh, the the best one we ever got was someone sent a box to the writer's room. And the stuff, there was no filter. This was like pre-9-11. There was like no security. Stuff wasn't screened. If you just wrote Star Trek Paramount Los Angeles and threw it in the mail, it would end up in our offices. (laughs) And someone sent us a box, just a cardboard box that they had filled with essentially what looked like the contents of their kitchen uh, garbage can. It was like, you know, coffee grounds and eggshells and garbage. They sent us a box of garbage. (laughs) Hey, Ben moved with a box of that. Just yeah. recently, with, yeah. with a note that said, this is what you have done to Star Trek. Wow. Gosh. So did you have to like put on some rubber gloves to pull the note out? Yeah. Or? No, the assistant did that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm familiar roughly with how television works. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, so you would get, I mean, so it was like you, but you didn't dismiss it. I, the funny thing is you didn't dismiss that kind of stuff. You would take that home with you, not the garbage, but you would be like, 
someone hates what we're doing. Yeah. You know, you would never just go screw them. You know, well, I'm I'm writing the stories I want to write. You, yeah. took it, you took the weight of that very seriously. If people were calling and filling the voicemail box as they would every Monday morning, you'd come in and the the thing couldn't accept any more messages because all the people screaming about the terrible episodes we'd done. I was, was reading this like <laughs> manifest is like written in like 18th century political language. This manifesto that's going around online of people that are like declaring independence from star wars because they're so mad about the way the new movies are right like i don't know I, i've essentially dedicated my life to talking about star trek at this point but i don't even feel like i'm that passionate about it well it's i think you, know? you can't lose sight of the fact that it's it's a it's a it's a dramatic entertainment you know, yeah. I mean, it's a it's as to quote William Shatner from Saturday Night Live. It's te- it's a television show. It's right. a, it's an incredibly important television show. It was an incredibly groundbreaking and significant television show that's touched a lot of people's lives, my own included. Yeah. In, in very dramatic ways that have carried us all forward through 40 years. You know, I, I don't want to. I mean, we get stuff from, for our podcast. Like, I mean, for all the nice letters we get, we get one or two like incredibly vitriolic ones from time to time and they do really stick with you like the yeah i i think people don't don't understand that there's a human being on the other end of that you know that it's like i said before it's like there there are some episodes of enterprise that i wince when i look at (laughs) and i go i go but no we never set out to to piss all over the memory of star trek it's like we it all started with the best of intents we thought this one's going to be good this is a good idea let's do this and then sometimes you know the the you you watch in horror as the slow motion train wreck unfolds in front of you it's like yeah. oh my god this is just this not, didn't come together this the did way not come together we all hoped and doing 22 i think at the time we were doing 24 in a season, it was like triage. You didn't yeah. have time to fix every single one. Sometimes you would just have to go, oh, my God, we just got to let this one. It's either this or a clip show, guys. It, Which do you want? This one's got to die. This patient's going to die on the table or else the guys in waiting, the three guys in the in the waiting room are, are going <laughs> to make it. But we, everybody loved I mean, that's the, that's the thing that was hurtful, I think, when um, – you know, when people would get upset and, yeah. and vocally upset was there was the sense that we that they loved it more than we did. And and I don't having seen. The, did you get the same kind of vitriol for your two seasons of sliders? Like, why did you cut the budget? You jerks. Probably. But they didn't have a forum. Yeah. It was like there was. Right. No, it was too early. It, it was too early. So yeah. it was like, you know, and plus no one was watching it at that point anyway. So. <laughs> More of a light subject. Adam and I have uh, long been lobbying for some involvement with Star Trek Discovery, Mm -hmm. running kind of like a dark horse outsider campaign. Uh, Originally, we were, you know, like Discovery had been announced and we thought maybe it'd be fun to uh, try and be in the writer's room for it given that we've thought a lot about Star Trek. Right. I think that was like the amount of entitlement we were bringing to that campaign. Uh, hey, we think about this a lot. You should put us on the show. Yeah, but then we wound up really liking the show, you know, and uh, now we're thinking what we want is to be extras in the hallway when the ship gets hit and we get blown out into space. Sucked out in space. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Uh, what do you think the likelihood is, having been on the inside of... Two, two noisy idiots from the internet 
uh, getting getting something like that going. Well, I the first thing I have to say is I have no connection whatsoever to. I'm not asking you. No, to no, hire no. Us. But I just want to be upfront about that. <laughs> thanks that I very said, much, no I... Chris Black, for being on the show. Yeah. 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 Okay, thanks, guys. We, yeah, really, we gotta go. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know, I can't. I I just want to say I can't. I cannot put in a call for you um, because I don't know those guys. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm asking you more to like speculate. Like, would that have ever? Sure. Yeah. 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 No, it happened all the time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It wasn't it, it, when we were doing it. It wasn't necessarily podcasters, but right. You know, but there were people I remember we would have. Hey, there's this guy that we really like that sent us a box of kitchen trash. And yeah, we exactly. just think he's got a really cool vibe. Let's blow him out an airlock. <laughs> yeah, but like a real one. <laughs> uh, the no, they would have. I remember we had some sailors um, came once from the, the actual aircraft carrier Enterprise uh-huh. and came to visit. Sad, oh, yeah. the and they very famous nuclear wessel. Yeah, exactly. Where are the nuclear wessels? <laughs> um, the uh, and they put them in uniforms and, and put them in the background. And I think we had some NASA people come one time, and it was not. It, 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 I don't remember what the criteria was, you know, but it was not. It was not at all uncommon to, yeah. to have people on the show who you know who had some. So you're saying Connection. we need to join the Navy. You, uh, it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> or NASA. Or go into space. Okay. Go, actually go into space. Spend some time on the International Space Station. I think they'll put you on the show in heart. They'll do anything yeah, at that exactly. point. Yeah. They'll have you there. Um, or be like Stephen Hawking or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much of the envelope of theoretical physics I'm going to push personally. No, but I, look, I'd say it's you're not alone you know, <laughs> there are many, many people who would love to, to don that uniform, yeah. you know, and that myself included, I, I, I never actually wound up on the show. Yeah. Um, I think partly because at the time I was just too crazy busy to ever take the hours out of my day to go stand around and do it. But I think at one point or another, most of the other writers did. Oh, that's fun. Um, uh, and going to the wardrobe department was one of the coolest things you know, in my experience working on the show, because they had and uh, Robert Blackman, who was the um, costume designer at the time, who's just a, a, a genius, which is not a word I throw around, and, and also one of the loveliest human beings you'll ever work with, um, did such brilliant work. But they had every costume they had, like, ever made. You know, you would go. That they, is fun. They just racks and racks. Did and they racks. have it on one of those things like at a like at a dry cleaner where they call up like G? I, well, I think they would have loved if they'd had that. It would have made things so much easier. No, they were just crammed into this. Or like Cher Horowitz ancient, and Clueless, where they pick out the pants, the the shirt, and the hat. If only, if only, if people could see behind the scenes at the production of Star Trek and see how low tech and primitive it was. It was, like, <laughs> it was so anti Star Trek. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, you could you would walk back there, and they always got hounded at Halloween because people wanted outfits to wear. Sure. Um, but you would walk back there, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, here these are the." Starfleet uniforms from Rathacon and these are it was like and it was all just hanging there in dry cleaning bags. Wow. You know, decades of, of of history. Man, it's amazing that Paul Allen hasn't bought most of that stuff. He may have by now. <laughs> My people were biologically determined for one purpose alone. To sense the coming of death. What? To sense the coming of death. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host, and I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from, what am I gonna have for dinner, to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. 
And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Top of the morning to ya. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality. And this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. This doesn't make any sense. I sense it coming now. None of it makes any sense. Sounds like nonsense to me. What do you make of the abuse allegations in the Star Trek Discovery writer's room? And how do you personally like to cultivate uh, a creative atmosphere that that you want it to be, but also that is productive and schedule focused the way that it needs to be? Uh, look, I cannot speak to that situation because sure. I was not on that show. That's I why I made it a those... two part question. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, with that, I have to speak with that caveat, sure. you know. Um, I, I think people need to be treated with respect. And I think in the shows that I've run and the shows I've worked on, I, it, it goes back a little bit to what I said before, that 
there's a lot of responsibility to doing a television show, additional responsibility to doing Star Trek. They're giving you tens of millions of dollars and, and trusting you with something that's worth potentially billions of dollars to them. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure and everybody takes that very seriously and you run up against deadlines and it's hard. It's a hard job, but at the end of the day, it is a television show. Yeah. And most of the people working on it are doing jobs that are their dream jobs. They're their creative mm-hmm. dream jobs. They're getting to be, they're getting to work in the entertainment industry that they always want to do. They're getting to be writers and actors and yeah. and production people. And so it, my philosophy has always been, yes, there's a lot of pressure. Yes, there's a lot of responsibility, but it, it should always be fun. Yeah. And, and every time they let me on a set, like what I was saying before, when you walked onto those those Star Trek sets, it was it was like you died and gone to heaven. It was like this is what I'd wanted to do since I was 15 years old. It yeah. was so I always try to be grateful and bear that in mind. Um, now, all of that said, you are also in a room whose job, the job by definition, is to create drama. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you're doing. Yeah, and and you are you are creating dramatic situations and conflict between people to put on the screen, and nearly every writers' room I've ever been in, they're they're crucibles, and 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 the pot needs to be stirred, and people get passionate, and people shout, and people uh, argue their points aggressively and passionately. Um, I no, don't say think... conflict versus only child. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Well, no, and it's and, and, and rooms can be very different, and they and they really are sort of driven by the the temperament and the personality and the style of the of the person who's who's running it. You know, right. they can be they can be a narcissistic tyrant, uh, or they can be a, an incredibly nurturing and and benevolent leader. You know, depending on 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 who they get, but but. The nature of the beast is you're creating drama, and writers' rooms are, by definition, dramatic places. Does the temperament of that room reflect the showrunner primarily, or is it most? Does it mostly have to do with the the gathering of people in that room? Well, both, but okay. but you know the the leaders, the the showrunners, the, it's the captain of the ship. Yeah, you follow that person's lead. It's like to make you know, like when I was doing Enterprise, Scott Bakula is. One of the nicest, most generous, professional people I've ever worked with in this business. And the fact that he showed up every day. What does he, what does he have on you? What dirt does he just, have on you I that mean, you're terrified I, he'll put out there? No, he's, just the, he's just the greatest guy. And it was like, but he led by example. Yeah. You know, no, you had a lot of younger um, actors, you know, people who were getting their big breaks, first time, first TV series coming in, who if Scott had been a, a towering asshole, they they would have been like, oh, that's how you're supposed to act. That's right. how we're allowed to act. It, it would have allowed that behavior to to flourish. Set a precedent. Uh, yeah, set a precedent for that. And But because Scott wasn't that guy and set this precedent of just courtesy and professionalism, that's what everyone followed. And a writer's room is really the same way. I mean, the showrunner sets the tone. I've run a show myself and you, and you allow a lot of times some back and forth in the room, but you've got to know when to sort of moderate it and be the referee and say, okay, that's enough. We're going to keep it civil. We're right. not going to do this idea. We're going to do that idea. Someone's got to be the boss and make the final decision. So I, that was a little bit of a, I would say, nuanced or equivocating answer to your question. But I mean, I think that that's like in a weird way, like one of the main motifs that Star Trek has had for every series is like, 
like the captain is such a key figure. Yes. And what the captain is about colors everything, you know, like everything about the show. Right. I mean, I, I think Discovery to- had like one of the most interesting ones because the captain turned out to be a villain. Exactly. And and it did feel weird on the ship right. before we had that reveal. Well, I used to joke as much as I adored Scott that one of the reasons that maybe Enterprise was not as successful a, a, a show. Not enough shots of the dog. We, well, yeah, we, Porthos, where no dog has gone before. Um, <laughs> that dog, I, man, we could spend another hour here talking about the dog. Um, <laughs> but was that he was almost too nice. He was too nice. And, and one of the reasons that I was such an original series fan, one of the things that I thought made Kirk such a great Starfleet captain was that William Shatner was kind of an egomania. It was kind of a narcissistic asshole, you yeah. know, that, you know, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. I think it's fairly well known that he's, uh-huh. you know, uh, has that personality. But it, it's like it came through in that performance, Yeah, you know, that that's the kind of you need a certain arrogance to sit in that chair. Yeah. You know, and I guy who looks at himself in the mirror and goes like, I like what I see. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, all of it, and and you know, and in a way, uh, Scott was a little too much of an Eagle Scout, you know. Um, but they can be contentious places, and I think sometimes they need to be contentious places to to generate conflict and and sure. good story. You can but, have contentiousness without disrespect, yes, or hostility. Yes, but everyone should be at the end of the day needs to be treated respectfully. Absolutely, and that does come from the come from the the leadership in the room. When Rick and Brandon brought you in, uh, did they fence the yard as far as the the Star Trek universe at all uh, to the degree where you knew more or less where you needed to be in that first season of Enterprise? Or was it totally blank slate and a timeline that you guys were given? Well, it was it was I wouldn't say it was totally blank slate and it, it changed the the. Landscape changed a little under our feet, I think, as we got into that first season. Like I, I started to say, it was when we first, when I first went in and sat down with Rick, and he kind of laid out what the show was supposed to be. You know, there was a sense of they wanted Star Trek. You know, we had our make Star Trek fun again hats on. It mm-hmm. was like it was going to be exciting. It was going to be dangerous. That was the whole thing about setting it yeah. a hundred years before was that the technology did feel really dangerous in a way that felt new. Yeah, and that was the whole thing. Was it was and that was the way he pitched it. Was it's the right stuff in outer space. These are the test pilots. Right. This is an it's the an, an NX class ship. This is an experimental prototype. There aren't star bases all over the place. These guys are out there on their own. You know, with nothing but their wits, you know, and and their resourcefulness to to, to save them. And and I remember sitting in Rick's office, and he's like going, "It's gonna, you know, people are gonna die, shit is gonna break, you know, this is it's." And I I was like, "Sign me up!" You know, I've been waiting for this show for twenty years. It's like it sounds awesome, you know. Yeah. And, Did you guys form the characters? No, well, I came in after the pilot had been shot. Okay. Um, so Rick and Brandon had already conceived the show, pitched the show, had written that two-hour pilot episode, which I thought was a very good pilot, and yeah. and had shot it, and um, uh, you know, so that it was all that those parameters, those fences were already up. So this is okay. what the world is going to be. This is the ship. Here's the cast. Here's the crew. I liked the retcon that Vulcans think humans are smelly. <laughs> Well, and that was the other thing, too, was we you tried to be respectful of canon, but also you 
it was frustrating sometimes because you didn't want to be so slavish that it restricted your ability to tell fun stories. Yeah. You know, you wanted, I always, I feel like that's where the, the fan rage thing happens is like they, they get real fixated on the mythos. And then if something kind of slightly violates it, it can feel really upsetting. Absolutely. And, and look, understandably, you know, not to to like other fans, like obviously we're fans too, but I'm just saying like when, when people get upset, I feel like it's because it feels like it's undoing something that they love. Well, and that was the hard thing too, was that it was like, you know, as I said, we had 700 hours of television that you felt you couldn't, you know, that precedent had, it was like, it was like arguing a Supreme court case, you know, precedent (laughs) had been set so many times that I always felt my approach was, stick to the spirit of the law if not the letter you know that that if if we stick to the spirit of the star trek canon and don't do anything that violates the 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 world that star trek had created even if we fudge little things here and there and this doesn't quite fit or we had to retcon it or we're a little bit straying a little bit outside canon but was it in service of a great episode in service of a great story I was far more forgiving of that, I think, than than a lot of people were, which which then earned us boxes of garbage. <laughs> well, it's been a long way getting from there to here. Yeah, exactly. uh, oh, the song. You want to talk about the song? <laughs> yeah. Was that your fault? Or <laughs> and, you know, I, I will confess, I didn't hate the song. I don't hate that song. Um, I, I think I like the first version because didn't they change it? They after? tried to sort of make it edgier. I like the, the original version of the song. I, I love the met. I think it, it took a lot of flack because that particular song had been from that movie Patch Adams. Oh. And so it, it felt like it was not a good provenance <laughs> for a Star Trek theme. <laughs> um, and also that it was the first show that hadn't had an orchestral score, you know, an orchestral theme. But that also played into why they wanted Rick and Brandon wanted to say from that opening credits we're doing something this is a different show it's a different show we're doing something different and I love the visuals that the the opening credits sequence they designed I thought were great yeah they were cool Um, and they wanted to do that song and I think it's look is it a great song no I always Uh, wondered is that actually the shot from First Contact uh, with the with the the missile taking off or did they have to re-render it for clearance reasons that I couldn't tell you yeah, I always thought I always assumed it was the first shot because it yeah. just looked like the same shot because it looked like it to me. But I couldn't that I couldn't tell you. But but I, I I always felt even though it was not a great song, if you listened to the words, I I always thought that spirit embraced what that song was saying, said yeah. what we wanted to say with the show. There was it did a, have like a little bit of a like Christian rock vibe to yeah, it definitely. in a way that I think I can't argue with clashes you. with Star Trek from a tonal yeah. perspective. They had a bunch of different versions of it. Uh-huh. And one of them was that the same visuals that opening credit sequence, but set to U2's A Beautiful Day. Uh, and it was great. I bet that uh, I bet that was in the budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was like, you know, I was like, let's do that. And yeah. I, I don't know that uh, Rick was a U2 fan or it was too expensive or whatever. Who knows? But we didn't do it. Well, the other thing does, we didn't, you didn't do contemporary music on the show because it wasn't, so we had no music budget. It right. wasn't a, it wasn't a contemporary show. So. Did they have any Rage Against the Machine version or 
Beastie Boys version? There may, who knows? Or did J.J. Abrams invent that? There may have been. (laughs) I mean, Rage Against the Machine would actually be appropriate because they're communists. It's like the socialist space future. Exactly. It was like our utopian vision of our socialist space future. (laughs) We're all raging against the warp drive. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, are you working on anything now that you think uh, a Star Trek audience would be curious about? Oh well, the only thing I'll do I'll do a I'll do a quick shameless plug because sure. the last the last show I worked on I worked for two seasons running the show called Outcast, which was a Cinemax show based on the Robert Kirkman comic. Okay. Uh, and the second season, and no one has Cinemax, so yeah, that's uh, I've never heard of it, and which I don't is have why Cinemax. yes, exactly. It, it, you know, unless you're you know, it, as I once said to one of our Cinemax executives, the only reason I have it and I have a show on your network is because I got it for free and forgot to cancel it. <laughs> and he was like, "Dude, you and everybody else." Um, but the second season of Outcast uh, premieres this month on Cinemax. Um, we worked really hard on. I think it's really good. So, uh, okay. and it also uh, co-stars Brent Spiner. Hey, uh, uh, who all of your fans will know, uh, who was a lovely guy, a wonderful actor and a lovely guy to work for. So if you do have Cinemax or can get it off your parents, uh, oh, yeah, direct TV, use, use mom and dad's uh, login and yeah, please watch it. Chris Black, thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us on The Greatest Discovery. Thank you, guys. It was my absolute pleasure. Yeah. The Greatest Discovery is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison, and it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia. Head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to help with the ongoing production of our show, or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag GreatestGen or GreatestDiscovery when talking about the show. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.